0: Welcome to Translation. I'm your host, Seth Bannon, a founding partner at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. Translation is the process of turning basic scientific research into therapies that cure disease, new sources of energy that heal the planet, and other things that move the world forward. This podcast takes a deep dive into scientific achievements with huge potential to improve society. We talk directly with the people advancing the science with their own hands and minds and focus on how we can translate the science from the bench to the benefit of all. Welcome to Translation.
1: Behind every success, there are people with the courage to try, try, try. Okay.
2: Of energy to fix the carbon in our atmosphere,
3: to cure disease. Hey everyone, it's Ashton Trotman Grant, synthetic biologist of 50 years and co-host of Translation. Today, my co-host Ayush Nuri and I are chatting with Alfredo, Kenny, and Kyle about their journey building Latch Bio. Just imagine if every graphics design company built its own version of Photoshop in-house. What a waste of resources. Biology is facing the same challenge. Today, Every company builds its own system to store and manage a massive amount of data generated by their experiments. Alfredo, Kenny, and Kyle recognized this and really built LatchBio to change this. Latch is bringing the modern computing stack to biotech, basically uniting wet lab experiments with dry lab processing, storage, and analysis. Tune in for their journey from Berkeley dropouts to really incredible entrepreneurs building no-code tools to really power the biocomputing revolution.
4: Hey Alfredo, Kenny, and Kyle, thanks so much for joining us on the Translation Podcast. Before we dive deep into what you do, we'd like to get started with the origin story. What got you excited about science in the first place?
1: Yeah, so I've always been interested in biology and living things. I think I was very interested in animals, plants, herpetology, carnivorous plants in specific, since I was a young kid. I started doing molecular biology research when I was 15, first at local community colleges, as a lab hand, and then moving to MIT and BU over successive summers working on molecular biology research in the kind of cancer area, shadowing people, observing the way they did experiments, and then conducting and architecting my own experiments myself. At the same time, I was also interested in, you know, math and science at school. But the resources it, where I was were somewhat limited, as were, you know, obviously they were for lots of kids in the country. Coming to Berkeley was eye opening for many reasons. I studied EECS and bioengineering there. At Berkeley, I got really involved in tooling for ML. I worked at LBNL and JBay, worked under amazing people Hector Garcia Martin, Henrique de Paoli, half at the wet lab, half working on computational modeling for metabolic engineering. And then moved on to software systems at Serotny and Asimov, where I was building out machine learning and software infrastructure for predicting at Serotny phenotype of large-scale multiplex protein libraries. And at Asimov, I was in turn building a relationship with some remarkable people working on genetic circuits for well-characterized kind of cell chassis for downstream engineering that they would ship to pharmaceutical companies. It was very cool. Alec Nielsen is an amazing person. He's an angel investor in Latch and some someone whose research you should definitely read and follow. Um, back at Serotney, I then worked on like more ML seriously, and that's when Alfredo, Kyle, and I began exploring Latch.
3: And Kyle, what about you? What sparked your interest in science?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. When I grew up, I grew up in Orange County. I was born and raised in Newport Beach. And... The value system in Newport Beach, people actually didn't care about science very much, (laughs) believe it or not. So when I grew up, I was very, very curious, but it was not something that was in the environment around me. A lot of people like studying science or people caring very much about it. And the first thing that happened to me when I got to Berkeley is I was blown away with just the uh, rigor of the research institution itself and how curious and driven all all the students were to like find out fundamental questions about life, which I always felt like I was asking myself, but in environments of growing up, I didn't feel that other people around me were. So when I got to Berkeley, I felt like I kind of found my my people in a sense. And going in, I was like, I'll I'll study business because I since I was a kid, I always wanted to create something. I always wanted to start actually a company. I quickly realized that business doesn't actually teach you anything when you study it. When you're taking multiple choice tests on leadership or marketing, you really have to do it to understand how to build a business. And at the same time, while I was at Berkeley, I wanted to take advantage of the scientific rigor that was there. So I decided to switch really quickly into cognitive neuroscience and data science. I was obsessed with the brain and trying to understand how the brain works. And that actually sparked a lot of hours long conversations between me and Alfredo in terms of what we wanted to do with our lives, how we wanted to spend our time. So it was sort of a convergence of interests between the brain, life sciences, tech, and starting something that was bigger than myself. and. Through many hours of uh, research and conversation, we sort of arrived at a shared set of interests we decided to dive deeper in.
5: Cool. Alfredo, your turn. What sparked your interest in science? Totally. I mean, my interest in in science came from the broader, or not broader, but from the tangential computer science and mathematics. So I, I originally came from Mexico to Berkeley, and at UC Berkeley, I was studying electrical engineering, computer science, and dabbling in some mathematics, mainly focused on machine learning and really dive really deep into it. While I was doing that, I got the opportunity to first intern at Facebook doing data engineering for ad policy. So optimizing bad advertisements from getting into the platform. And then I got to intern at Google Brain, contributing to TensorFlow Core and got to see the data infrastructure that they had there. Meanwhile, I was working with Kenny and Kyle. And I was also previously working at UCSF doing self-supervised learning on neural waves to kind of predict focus and emotion based on on these neural waves and EEG. And it was really crazy to me to see this amazing data infrastructure that these technology companies have, like Google and Facebook, right? You're seeing the state-of-the-art, world-class data infrastructure being used by these companies to, (laughs) what, like optimize advertisements, right? Getting people to click on shit they don't really want. And then on the other hand, you had these biologies, these scientists, and I was seeing Kenny kind of trying to help. Uh, we were already kind of working together on different projects, Kenny, Kyle, and I. And I was seeing Kenny building some infrastructure for biotech companies that, I mean, it was amazing for for him as, as, as an intern there, but it was still very basic. And I was like, wait, these people on the other hand are trying to cure cancer, heart disease, aging, like global warming. And they have the most garbage tooling I've ever seen in the world. Like how can we make something to help them instead of the people optimizing advertisements. And so we started doing customer interviews. We started working with a bunch of really amazing companies. And yeah, I mean, the, the rest is, is a Latch history. Like clearly, even before Latch, you guys knew each other. So how did you guys knew each other and why Berkeley? So Kyle and I met freshman year. Uh, we were in the same dorms and we ended up joining the same fraternity, which Kenny ended up joining a year after when he joined Berkeley, mm. bonding there and becoming really good well, really good friends. And then a couple of years later, we reconnected to, to work together. We, we all kind of kept in touch with each other. And when we wanted to start working on different projects, we we all came back together. And then Kenny and I actually were in the same machine learning club at that point, way more involved in that. And then we, we worked together there and Kyle and I were still really good friends. We actually lived together senior year And so it kind of all came together to us, uh, working on different projects that then converged into Latch.
4: And what was the moment during your undergrad experience when you were all sort of interacting together in the same clubs, in the same fraternity, when you realized that, hey, not only do we have similar interests, but maybe there's a startup here?
1: I would say that all of us were dead set on building something enormous. And at first, it didn't really matter what it was going to be. We just knew that it was going to be big and that this was the team that was going to do it. And a large reason why we dropped out when we did is we didn't want to lose the opportunity of working with the team that we had, It's like a very fleeting thing. So the moment someone graduates or receives some new opportunity, the whole magic dissolves in front of you. And so part of it was we just trusted each other to scaffold something that was going to be huge. Latch came through the traditional like startup process of like looking for a niche in the market. We tried numerous ideas before Latch in in terms of like ideating. And just messing around with projects and building things and putting them out there. For me personally, like I knew I was going to start a company in biotech. I just didn't know when it was going to happen. And like you know, fifty years in in, in particular is super adamant about pushing people to do things and supporting people to do things before the traditional credentials kind of give them the the societal backing that they need. For us and for me in particular, it was a still gray area or uncertain if I could do a biotech company without a PhD. And so doing a company with Alfredo and Kyle was the only thing that I could be sure of. Doing a biotech company was something I could be sure of in the, in the medium-term vision of like my life. But those two things then worked themselves out. <laughs> we are now doing a biotech company with Kyle, Alfredo, myself. The main
5: conviction initially was the team just working together and just creating things. And I mean, we did everything from... Uh, we dabbled in healthcare to creating applications for for neuromarketing, and we might or might not have created a dating app at some point. But <laughs> the, might the, the, might not
1: the, a better one. <laughs> uh,
5: it, the, the point is, when we it when we it's really awesome. hit us that we wanted to work on something like Latch is, you start realizing kind of when we dropped out, you start realizing like, oh, this is this is a 15 year thing? What are we actually want, willing to dedicate our lives to for the next 15 years to? And that's when we realized that from all the problems we were looking at, there was probably only like one or two that fit into that category.
1: Yeah. And and when you really look at a company from that perspective, like what's the thing that's going to give me the energy to work on it for 15 years? And like having a conversation with Alfredo and Kyle, like they actually shared a similar passion for synthetic biology. Like This is something that I've been doing for almost 10 years up to this point. It's clearly something we could all work on for 10 more years. It's like something that we genuinely like look forward to working on when we wake up in the morning each day. And there's no shortage of information and papers we can continue to read, become more knowledgeable on. It's, it's like an energy giving exercise. Almost all the other ideas failed that litmus test. Especially insurance. <laughs> Especially the dating app.
3: <laughs> Both of you guys mentioned dropping out to start this company. What was the most challenging thing about
5: that decision? My mother. Your mother? <laughs>
2: Why was it challenging?
5: I mean yeah they, they weren't very happy about the decision they still have the the old mentality that it's the piece of paper rather than the knowledge that's going to it's going to be very beneficial and I mean to be fair she has sacrificed a lot to to get me to that point where I could have that opportunity to study at UC Berkeley so yeah it was very hard for her and my and my dad for when I told them I was dropping out uh, slash taking one semester off to see what happens that one must yeah. have turned into two. Yeah, I think she's still hoping that we that we IPO one day so that she can ask me to go back and finish <laughs> my degree.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I still promised my grandpa
5: I would finish my degree in like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Say for me, the most difficult part was just, I mean, the period of uncertainty where we were bouncing around between ideas and you have taken a plunge where you're the only one that's responsible for what happens. It's your decisions, it's your actions. It is fully what you put into it. You get out of it. You can't blame anyone else. It's fully on you. And so it's a great trial <laughs> by just throwing you in the pool and like seeing if you drown or swim. Mm. And so, yeah, I would say that was the hardest part was getting through that period. But throughout all of it, I really had conviction. Honestly, had conviction in myself, but really the team. That was like the common thread.
1: Yeah, the team's magic, man. I mean, from from my, my parents, didn't really give a shit. it's all good
4: and looking back you guys i mean was that the right decision for you and for latch
5: no (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) yeah yeah i I would say it was the right decision i mean we achieved so much over those first initial six months i mean we got our pre-seed funding we went to taiwan we built the company there for three months and then at the end of those six months we were raising a an an actual seed Uh, our seed worth 50 years in lux capital uh, participate in a, a bunch of other awesome venture capital um, and we hired two of our best friends and six months later we were building what now felt like a real company so yeah they, they were pretty pretty important every six months have been but mm. if you don't have that urgency to build a company like i would i would double think about whether you actually really mm. want to build that company
3: And you, let's 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 dive into that a bit like tell me about like, the decision to go to taiwan
2: so in a nutshell we got introduced to a friend who was and now a close friend, who was running a hacker, basically a hacker house in Taiwan, a community of founders that were trying to build companies. And I think the main reason we went was just because we were the only ones at Berkeley that we knew that were trying right now, middle of COVID, to start something, and we want to be surrounded by that kind of energy, like the the founder energy where there's people all day hustling to to make what they're building a reality. So that brought us out to Taiwan. It was also pretty attractive that there was no COVID there, and they had like eight cases over the course of the entire pandemic up to that point. So it was sort of just like a free reign, do whatever you want for three months in Taiwan and and build as fast as you can. And on the point of timing, I'll also add that COVID, in a bit of a backwards way, created an opportunity to reach out to people online where they were just immediately receptive. So there was a week where we booked 45 (laughs) customer interviews in one week. It was like the first week in Taiwan. And I think that was pretty incredible just the the chance that we were able to do that
1: i'll add the reason we booked 45 calls is we were quarantined by force by the taiwanese government we're living in a hotel room with no access to the outside world with pretty bad food being delivered twice maybe maybe three times if we're lucky a day and we we booked a lot of calls as a byproduct
5: and i I will add to that um, and yeah those kfc breakfasts were definitely not not the, (laughs) (laughs) the best things I will say one one really important thing of this program of living in a house with 20 other entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is just that reassurance, right? And I think I really don't think it can be undervalued, the reassurance within building a startup, because a lot of the decisions and things within this within creating a startup are completely made up. I mean, if you look at valuations and how you talk to people and how you negotiate certain things and how you create your first initial selling contracts and, and LOIs, it's it's all a really made up process. And so having other people going through the same thing and reassuring you like, yeah, 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 it's all made up. Like you just do this or like, oh, just just figure it out. I think it's a really reassuring experience and helped us a lot in figuring out the, the startup world as, as dropouts from from Berkeley. So from one young person to another, first let's go around and hear, how old actually are you guys? I'm
2: 17, <laughs> I'm 23, oh, this is Kyle. Um, I'm 24. I'm 22. What's it like running a startup in
4: your 20s?
1: Are there any challenges that you faced? It's Probably just as hard as running a startup in your 30s. It's the same amount of hard. I think one thing we faced was a little a little bit of worry about just
2: credentialism. <laughs> we all came right out of college without bachelor degrees. So going into a space that's predominantly PhDs and masters students was definitely a challenge. But I honestly encourage younger entrepreneurs at our age and people who are in school to do it earlier rather than later to I, I, I see the longer that you wait, the more the lower chance that you're actually going to take the plunge and try and do something really special. And the more complicated life gets, you build a family, you meet the love of your life. You're not going to be, you know, trying to build the universal biocomputing platform when you're like 33 with two kids. So I think maybe you will. Um, But I think that, you know, the younger you are, I don't see it being a huge blocker to your success. In fact, I think it could be a superpower as long as you're at a point where you think you've gained enough knowledge and ability to really leverage and utilize it.
1: I would honestly say we don't think about it at all, and we're at the point too, where our customers and users don't think about it at all. We strive for kind of the global best, like the, the both on the technical side and organizationally, just the, the best. So when you're the technical authority on like what's correct, from a, you know a software perspective, from a solutions perspective, and you're delivering something that is clearly recognized as the correct solution here, whether it's, you know, it's a workflow or or something else, people don't care about, you know, how old you are. They care about the thing that you're doing and shipping to them. And so it has never actually even been involved in any of our conversations. We just kind of focus on the work itself.
5: Yeah, no, I have nothing to add. I totally agree with that. If anything, it's put some pressure on us to deliver and we just keep on delivering and keep on making our work speak for us. And I... The only thing it does is it does make me appreciate the people that have believed in us early, whether it's the early customers, the early VCs, shout out to 50 years. But yeah, it really does make you appreciate the people that have believed in us from the beginning and that have seen the the vision and the product over our ages or our credentials. And yeah, we're just going to keep delivering and trying to make the best product and the, the best tooling independent of um, who we are and what credentials we have.
4: So Alfredo, you talked about how fast you grew right after dropping out. Let's talk about where you are now. In a couple of sentences, what do you do at Latch Bio?
1: Alfredo leads food delivery and cleaning of the general office areas.
5: <laughs> um, yeah, that and I'll, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so at LatchBio,
5: we do data infrastructure for biotech companies. And currently specifically, we're helping scientists analyze their data without needing to know how, how to code or needing to know very little code. Can you define um, this bioinformatics for
0: us?
1: Yeah, bioinformatics is taking unintelligible data from a machine from a laboratory and processing it with a computer so that it's human interpretable, uh, usually by an end biologist, not a layperson.
3: And right now, if a biologist at a company wants to use these
5: bioinformatic analysis tools to get the meaningful data, what do they do? Over the last 10 years, the rate of data generated from a biological experiment has 10 x every two years, which means that over the last 10 years, it's 10,000 x which means that a biologist has gone from finishing an experiment and looking at it either with a human eye or with some fluorescence probes or with an instrument in their wet lab to now getting back a file with 10,000 lines of ACT mm-hmm. and or 5,000 microscopy images or 1,000 amino acid sequences. Like what do you do with 1,000 of anything? you're not gonna look at it with the human eye. You need to boil it down into statistics, plots, graphs that you can actually look at. But the way to do this is through code, through programming. And scientists, as good as they are at theorizing about biology, programming is not their best talent. And so what ends up happening is that they rely on a computational person, a bioinformatician, a computational biologist to process this data and put it down into these plots and graphs. But what we found by talking to people over and over, whether it's a five-person biotech or a 500-person pharma company, is that these computational people are incredibly hard to find. And so what ends up happening is that biologist finishes their experiment, sends the data to the bioinformatician, and then they wait. And they wait for a day, they wait for a week, they wait for a month, just to get back to the results of their experiments that 10 years ago, they got back instantly. And so we were looking at this and we were trying to figure out how we could build tools for the computational person to process this data faster and be able to not be the bottleneck of the company. But what we found is that actually a lot of the work they're doing is repetitive and could be automated, not automating their jobs, but automating the part of the job that they didn't want to do anyway so that they can focus on that remaining 20% of the work that is actually the complex statistical analysis that they trained a PhD to do. And so that's what we started doing. We started creating tools for the biologists and to be able to process this data themselves in a beautiful interface where they could upload the data, run it through the workflows, run it through the algorithms, and then visualize it all within one single platform that the computational people could also interact with in a programmatic way. So that's kind of what we're building right now.
1: So like what kind of experiments is Alfredo talking about? Like one really concrete thing is How do you read out the basic primitives in biology in 2022? How do you read out like a construct that you've made? Well, you get a big bag of 100 base pair segments. It's like next generation sequencing. It's completely impossible to interpret without the aid of like a heavily threaded, highly powerful computer. And who knows how to manipulate this computer? Usually a specialist bioinformatician, a specialist computational biologist, a really high in demand person. You want a program that's accessible to the biologist that can take this bag of, of short nucleotide segments, these reads, these NGS reads, and just assemble it for them and return them the assembly. And they can just view it right there in the browser without going to anyone else with a 20, sub-24 hour uh, turnaround time and the ability to share the resulting assembly and annotate it and mark it up and distribute it to all of their colleagues. That's the concrete use case of what Latch Bio does.
4: So you want to overcome the fundamental disconnect between biologists and bioinformaticians with a centralized platform that's easy to use for biologists and easy for bioinformaticians to make others have access to their code. Can you walk us through what you're building at LatchBio to do that?
2: The data platform kind of itself does three things, and I think it's good to ground it in how this helps a company, right? So they need somewhere to store all of the data they're generating, Like, and I'm not talking about small metadata, I'm talking about hundreds of terabytes of sequence data. They need somewhere to store that internally that's safe and secure. Then they need to process and convert it into something that's human readable, like we've been talking about. So that's a set of workflows that allow you to do that. And then you need to pull that downstream and do custom statistics on it and generate the plots that you need. And so you need notebooks or a like data science application to do that. So what we've built is very, very like fundamental, like we call it kind of laying the bricks. It's like the base infrastructure that biotech needs. They need to store their hundreds of terabytes of omics data, process it into human readable format with all these workflows, and then do downstream analysis on it so that they can make decisions about the next experiment to run. And I think something that's really cool is that we're also building integrations so that that end-to-end process can actually be automated. So we can automatically pull reads off the sequencer, trigger a pipeline, it automatically runs, and then you just have the scientists getting their end results with like very minimal hands-on effort in between.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the way, the way that it works is we've really built what I consider the, the most modern technology stack in biology by far. We have, we have one of the most incredible engineering teams. But what we've done is we've basically created a warm queue of heterogeneous computers backed by Kubernetes, uh, any type of computer you can think of, both in terms of resource size and in terms of machine architecture that just sits waiting to be picked off and scheduled, attached to a workflow and executed. And we, we built out the system so that you can schedule 100 genomic assemblies, 1000 alpha fold inferences, pretty much whatever you want. And our, our cluster will swell to accommodate the load of the processing demands attached to it and, and make it happen. More parallelly, in addition like to, to have the ability to execute these workflows at a tremendous scale, we've built uh, what we call the SDK, which is a Python native developer toolkit to let people define workflows in plain Python and subprocess you know, programs in any other language that they would want to create their own workflows, to add their own pieces of logic to this latch catalog of existing tools and take advantage of this enormous cluster that we built to process their own samples at their own lab specific to their own research, or even with companies to, to write their own pipelines specific to their own in-house assays at whatever scale they want. And so this combination of like letting people write their own logic dy- that dynamically works and slots into this Latch computing platform is, is very powerful. So in this way, we're trying to bridge the divide between the computationally literate bioinformaticians and you no-code know, savvy biologists and uh, really in one place. We, we want to free up repetitive bioinformatics to do more innovative biological research. And like bioinformaticians should not be plumbing together pre-existing tools and making them work on cloud infrastructure. They should be figuring out how to architect more novel processing pipelines, how to look for the next best set of tools, how to write new tools that don't exist. So we're just trying to automate away a problem that's been, you know, it's more or less should be solved. So walk us through this a bit.
4: Let's say I wanted to see the off-target effects of a CRISPR therapy I was building. So I delivered the therapy to the cells, pulled out their genomes, and sequenced the genomes with the goal of seeing if mutations appear outside of where I'm trying to edit. How do you envision me pushing this sequencing data through your pipeline?
1: Yeah, so you basically upload, uh, if you do you know gene editing through PCR Amplicon, where you, you're basically designing primers to go after like the 150 base pair or so locus that you made the edit at. You take that PCR data, which comes off of the sequencer as a FASTQ file. You upload it to LATCH, either through our SDK through the command line. You drag, You can also drag and drop it directly into the web portal. Or you can upload it to an S3 bucket and then mount that bucket directly. Or you can upload it directly from the Illumina machine with our uh, base integration. So there's a myriad of ways of which you need to get data into the platform. But once you do, you have options, you're in Candyland. Because basically once the data is up there on the platform, you can upload it and it now works seamlessly with one of many uh, gene editing Amplicon analysis pipelines. And the way that these work is you just take the, you pick the pipeline from Explore. There's a couple of options. You have Crespresso, you have Caspi, you have a few others. And you uh, subscribe to it from Explore, you load up the parameter page, and then you select your file from the data file system, and you just run it as many times as you would like. And again, the compute will scale and swell to support the load, whether or not you wanted to run 10, 100, or 1,000 separate samples. And it'll promptly get deposited in your account when it's finished. Mm.
2: To run it, you literally just need to click like three buttons. <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> it's really easy.
3: So you have the uh, the CRISPR analysis. What other use cases can people use the Latch platform
2: for? It's a great question. In the explore page, Mm -hmm. we've grouped by domain all these different tools you can use. So if you're doing epigenetics, if you're doing library screens, any kind of NGS data that you're generating. Like we mentioned earlier, if you need to take an amino acid sequence and and fold a protein from that sequence, you can do that with AlphaFold in, again, just a couple of clicks. We're actually figuring out right now what are the domains that people most need modern tooling for like bioinformatics tooling for. There's been a lot of talk about spatial omics recently, a spatial single cell, you know, RNA sequencing and transcriptomics mm. and also epigenetics. Uh, so w- we're, we're looking more into like, what are the best tools to be adding, but we can really massage anything into the platform.
5: I sometimes don't like to focus so much on the end applications like AlphaFold, Crespresso, Cassoff Finder, or the specific workflows, because the way we really see Latch is as an infrastructure play, right? In the 2000s, people thought about AWS and the cloud. They were automating away software engineers. And 20 years later, they've made software engineers so productive that we need them more than ever. And I see bioinformaticians and computational biologists and software engineers in biotech the same way, where we really want to just be the infrastructure where they build on top of. We want to build a marketplace dynamic, but anytime you have a marketplace dynamic, you're going to have a chicken and egg problem, right? Why are biologists going to use our platform if there's no workflows available? And why are computational people going to upload workflows if there's no biologists to use them? So what we're doing right now is we're seeding one side of that marketplace. We're uploading all the workflows ourselves, everything that Kyle just mentioned, so that we can get biologists using the platform. And now that after you get hundreds and thousands of biologists using the platform, now going back to the computational people and being like, hey, instead of uploading your workflow, your new research paper to GitHub, where no one's gonna be able to replicate Mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. shitty research code, (laughs) or, or putting it on your own website that you're gonna have to maintain for five years, just use the Latch SDK to upload it to our platform. And so we're gonna have computational people uploading their workflows to our platform through the SDK, biologists using those workflows through an automatically generated no-code interface, and other computational people using those workflows through an automatically generated API or SDK that takes care of the cloud infrastructure for them. And so at that point, we can make a self-propagating positive feedback loop marketplace dynamic that becomes the central AWS plus GitHub for every biotech to just plug into from day one and start analyzing their data without needing to build anything in-house.
3: And as you spoke to different biologists, were you talking to like academic bench lab bi- biologists or biologists at the, in diet companies? Both. Both?
5: Yeah. Yeah, I think you need both. They're both doing different, but really important work and more so the academic biologists are going to be the industry biologists of the future. So we, we you need to talk to everyone.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean, bi- biotech as an industry is uniquely in bed with academia more so than any other industry, whereas everything flows from academia in terms of new ideas, uh, computationally or otherwise. So you really have to win the, the trust and support and the use of academics at scale. And uh, the only software company uh, that has really done this well is Benchling and we're really mm. taking example from them in the way that we target academics and really try to build strong, positive relationships with them, uh, in order to use Latch at a stage you know where we're not turning a profit from them, where we genuinely want good usage, um, so that it will float industry in the future over the long term.
4: Circling back to something you said earlier, Kenny, you mentioned Kubernetes. Which not everyone might know what that is. And you also mentioned the ability of the Latch Bio platform to swell and to dynamically assign compute based on the load. Can you talk a little bit about what problems that solves for, especially for your biologists, and why that differentiates Latch from existing platforms out there?
1: First, just let me, the SDK is what defines a workflow. And so quickly, I just wanna go over what a workflow is. So a workflow is a series of tasks. And you can think about it as a graph with a direction, what people in computer science call a directed acyclic acyclic graph or a DAG. And what we do at Latch is we are built on top of a workflow orchestration engine incubated and spun out of flight or out of lift. It's called flight. And what we've done is we've forked and modified many of the services and are working with their core team to build it in a way that's conscious of biology. So this, this basically means letting it support biologically conscious types. In addition, just like leveraging many of the core and useful features that flight has natively. And what we do with this workflow graph is each task becomes a container that is allowed to have its own set of resources assigned to it. And you can think of resources as cores or RAM, potentially the presence of a GPU, potentially the presence of large file amounts. And by just assigning the workflow task, these resources, when you write code with the SDK, we can guarantee that those resources will be available when the workflow gets executed. And this is, this is actually incredibly hard to do and something we just provide out of the box. The utility of the biologist is a very common thing that people want to do is schedule tasks with very different needs but that are part of some overarching workflow. An example is you want to do some sort of genomic assembly on a highly-threaded machine and pass the resulting assembly to a machine learning model for some sort of inference. These two tasks require very different types of machines. One needs a very high CPU-leverage machine, and another needs a machine with a GPU. And with Latch, you can just say in your Python code, I want lots of CPUs on this task, and I want a GPU on this next task. And deploy it with the SDK, and then we handle the rest. So the biologist doesn't worry about uh, provisioning and maintaining complex and different types of computers. It's a completely abstracted way for them. They don't have to learn software engineering or general IT DevOps type work. They can just focus on the logic that they're writing within the code that will run on that machine itself.
4: And help us understand, Kenny, are there other solutions out there that can do what you guys are
1: doing? So there, there's several things that Latch does that not only do no other company workflow execution company in biology does, but we don't think any other company period does, which is we have the ability to dynamically generate front end code from Python logic uh, from scratch using this Latch SDK tool chain. It's, it's something very unique and powerful and what we hope will see this flywheel that Alfredo was speaking to earlier. Additionally, the ability to kind of specify resources and the ability to specify architecture on a per task basis for a workflow orchestration engine isn't offered by any sort of large scale managed workflow execution company uh, at all. So those two unique features are something that Latch does, I think, well and distinctly.
2: Yeah, I would just add to that too, like just design. <laughs> Like just usability. It's We've built a very, very easy to use platform. And what we've seen with the existing platforms is that they're often built for the person at the top of the company who is making the decision about what software do I buy. And then it's designed for them. So when it trickles down to the people who are actually the end users, they have no idea what's going on, no idea how to use the software. They don't know where to click. like it, And it's just like a slow and difficult to use system. So we've been... Very conscious about we're building this for the end user, the scientist, the coder, and not for the CTO. And I think that really differentiates when you just—I mean—you can log into all the platforms and try them side by side. I think you'll just see it's like one is is a lot
1: easier to use. I think the CTOs need love too, though. You know, (laughs) (laughs) some of them,
3: not all. And guys, you start working with different companies. Have you noticed any patterns in what companies just we need from you guys?
2: Yes, I'll comment on that briefly. Mm -hmm. So. The amazing thing about, I don't think we really emphasize it here, but every company, and we we're doing these customer discovery calls in Taiwan, like mm. 200, 300 calls, we noticed that they're all building this same platform in-house on the cloud. And when they get to a certain stage, you start seeing their job postings go up for software, DevOps engineer, cloud infrastructure engineer, and they're type- assembling five or 10 people teams to architect this stack on the cloud. So we noticed that. They need a place to store all their data securely and process it with powerful computers, which is what they're reinventing internally. Alfredo made a really good analogy when we started out, which was like, it's kind of like a design studio building Figma or Photoshop in-house. Like, it doesn't really make sense. So that's the core pattern. We've noticed it's like an in-house build, and we're trying to make it uh, better and easier to use than in-house.
1: Yeah, I would say too. It follows from the biology, the kind of company that we're targeting, and we're very much witnessing or benefiting from the tailwinds of certain trends. What's happening in biotech companies in general? Like pretty much all of our customers are selling gene therapy companies. Same customers of the aforementioned Benchling, and they're all doing something new, which is a platform play with some sort of large automated multiplexed assay, and the platform, or the like Kyle described, the software platform that they build. Is designed to process information from that biology. So, companies that are you know, still figuring out yet are working on some sort of highly automated large scale platform assay are going to be the most conducive to benefit from Latch's, Latch's features.
3: And when you, even before the customer interviews, I'm assuming all three of you had assumptions of what the, the field needed. How are those assumptions changed?
1: <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, Alfredo and Kyle have learned a lot, but at the beginning, didn't know much about biology. (laughs) Uh, That's true, guys. (laughs) And now they're like teaching me new things every day. My my own assumptions before have been about how to make a company is like, I thought we're going to make dev tools for biologists. Mm. That's not what we're doing at all, because that's just not where the industry is. And so, like by talking to so many people, working with so many people, realizing that, really getting the whole picture of where everyone's at no one is there yet and eventually we'll be there making programmer tools because individual teams have matured enough to where they need that but you know everyone's really at a nascent stage in terms of their use of technology at biotech companies and that, that was honestly Alfredo's insight and in all this where he came from with his experience.
5: Yeah, I think for me the one of the biggest learnings is I wish you could really completely forget about that CTO completely forget about that head of data science and just make something that the end bioinformatician, the end biologist just mm. truly loves and then just trust that that's going to work out. The fact is, it's really hard for these people to trust your company and your platform, especially when you're getting started and you don't have those logos yet. And we're getting much better around that. But I mean, a sequencing run these days is a couple thousands of dollars. And so nobody finishes a sequencing run and then it's like, oh, let me figure out how to process this data on this platform I saw online, they're they're thinking more deeply about these things and they need something they can trust. And so, yes, you want to make an end product that the consumer, which is the biologist or the bioinformatician loves and that they love to use, but you also have to do that top-down motion. You also have to go tell the CTO and tell the the BP why your platform is trustable, why we have SOC2, why we have HIPAA, why why we have all these certifications and we have everything that they're going to need on their side to make sure their scientists can use us. And so you're really going to give that love top down and bottom up. And for us, I mean, coming off as students, I, I joke, they they don't teach you enterprise sales in college. <laughs> they, they really don't. And so learning how to do that enterprise sales pipeline and mm. Kyle has just been amazing at ramping up and becoming the head of sales at our company and learning how to deal with these personalities and learning how to deal with objections and how to get someone to, to sign a multi-hundred thousand dollar contract and also how to prioritize both those people but never forget about the end customer which is that scientist that's using you day to day to get their insight.
3: I'm quite curious you mentioned HIPAA maybe you could talk to you a little bit about the security of, of latch uh, on bio and how you guys um, decided to to frame that.
1: I mean it's funny you ask. A lot of people ask us this all the time. (laughs) I would say there's multiple things we do, and some of them are not really interesting, but highly technical. I would say that we, from a network topology perspective, the platform is uniquely architected such that the the data and workflows that customers put into the platform is really untouchable, not only from the public internet, but even from our own services. Uh, I gave a talk. About this uh, through the flight community that I'm happy to link in the description of this podcast. But you know, from that that network perspective, we're we're doing things correctly and I think in an innovative way. Uh, additionally, every endpoint is you know authenticated and uh, authorized using uh, JWT mediated authentication. Just all the kind of classic stuff you'd expect from a lockdown Silicon Valley SaaS company that we're kind of trying to bring that into the biotech ecosystem. So rest assured that is protected there. And Alfredo spoke to, we also get compliant for customers on a per customer basis if they're dealing with clinical data or not to make them feel more comfortable and to make sure that everything's secure for them. But yeah, security is something we were highly concerned about, but I think we have a very strong grasp on.
5: I'll add the, I guess, devil's advocate approach to that, which is I we deal with a lot of customers who feel like their data is more secure in-house, in their own servers, in their own memory, because <laughs> it's, they have it. And what they fail to consider is that cloud and AWS and GCP, and they spend thousands of engineers and millions and millions of dollars to make sure that their data is well-stored, secure. It's If something goes down, their data is stored in multiple places for resiliency. If a fire happens, they have security. They're completely, like, they're completely in the state of the art of cybersecurity, things that their IT team at these biotech companies is definitely not doing. And just because of that perception of, oh, my data in-house is more secure, but the reality is the cloud is probably in order of magnitude more secure and safer, both in resiliency, robustness, and cybersecurity than any single on-site server will ever be. And so, yes, it's it's about having a HIPAA compliance and that SOC 2 compliance, but it's also a lot about communicating and educating that to customers and teaching them why the, yeah, the, the industry has changed and they should actually
1: move with it. I think that's a big theme of Latch in general is educating our customers as to what the best way to do something is. And mostly we do that in terms of our, our software. This is the best way to do things with software agnostic biology but then specific to biology we're trying to bring that expertise to customers within biotech this cloud adoption point is critical people need to understand that the resiliency the security the robustness guarantees provided by cloud providers is orders of magnitude better than what you get with any sort of local setup the fact that people still have confusion around this just points to a lack of transparent information that's a super
3: good point at 50 years, we're super grateful to have partnered with you guys at the Seed around 2021. You guys have gone so fast since then. Can you maybe articulate some of the progress
2: that you guys have, have achieved since that time? Since we partnered with you all, I think when we started, very, very few early customers. We've grown quite a bit. So we have customers in cell therapy, in gene therapy. We have academic labs using Latch. Uh, there's an institute at Berkeley. Actually, we got permission to announce them. So the Innovative Genomics Institute at Berkeley. Yeah. That's awesome.
3: Can you maybe give um, an understanding of what, that, what they do at the IGI? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, it's a really cool use case innovative for innovative
1: genomics research. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the main things they're focused on. Okay. Thanks, Kenny.
2: <laughs> so it's, it's really cool. They have a number of different labs at the IGI. Uh, one of the things they did was spin up a clinical lab during like the peak of the COVID pandemic. And so through LATCH, they processed... Thousands of SARS CoV 2 genomes and called the variants on those genomes to tell patients, here's what variant of COVID you have. So they had no one computational to set this up, and we basically helped them automate that whole process on Latch. So that was their clinical lab, and then we also work with their editing lab, some of the researchers out of Jennifer Downa's lab to help them with their CRISPR research as well. Um, so it, it, but we both span like academic, nonprofit, but a big focus now on industry cell so and in, in gene therapy. And even starting to focus on early stage pharma.
5: Yeah, I guess I'll I'll add to that in the in the sense of team. So since we, I mean, when we initially talked to Michael and Seth, in that we were in our Taiwan rooms in this hostel, it was the three of us just working day in and day out. We actually did our whole seed round from nine p.m to 6 a.m. every day because that's just the times that VCs would take meetings at. Well, I was sweaty. Uh, <laughs> since then, <laughs> we've um, we've raised uh, we, we, that round and, and and a little post. We raised 7.5 million dollars. We grew the team now from three people to a little over 10 people. We got our of, office in mm. SF. And now we're about to announce a $25 million raise. We're trying to grow the team from 10 people to 30 people over the next year and really hiring for every position from software engineer, customer success, account executive, and really trying to grow the team and put us in a position where we can give the best tooling in the world to biologists and scientists.
3: And what is that learning process like growing your own team?
5: We've definitely had to level up in every single aspect of management and really learning to let go of doing things yourself and rather empowering other people to do the best work. I, I kind of tell all, everyone that works at Latch that my job has turned from kind of doing a lot of the work ourselves and, and Kenny and Kyle, we talk a lot about this. We It's gone from doing the job ourselves and from doing the work ourselves to making sure that the people working with us are empowered to do the best jobs of their lives. And if someone does not have that capability, then it's our job to find a way to unlock and to unblock so that they are able to very clearly and confidently say that within their time at Latch, they've been able to do their best work of their lives.
1: On engineering, the team has really turned into what I hoped it would be. I think we're building, again, the best engineering team in biotech. And as the team expands, the best engineering team in the world. My, my own passions and interests kind of grew from reading about historic engineering groups talking about Alan Kay, Xerox Park, Kelly Johnson, Lockheed Martin, the good old boys at Bell Labs, the Hungarian Jews at, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project. These groups of phenomenal people kind of captivate the imagination of a young, budding engineer like myself. And I think I grew and spread that passion to the engineers at Latch. We all really are convinced that were part of something special here. I, the people we're hiring for and selecting for are not normal engineers. Everyone on the founding team was, uh, pro- actually everyone was math and CS at Berkeley. And we have kids who built operating systems when they are 15. We have a kid who dropped out of school a year prior to Latch to work on machine learning, cognition systems for robotics. And they don't know anything about biology yet. They are so smart and they're so capable and and work so well together that they can kind of solve any problem. And it just happens to be biology. It's the perfect intellectual substrate as a testing ground for their own ability. I think this team is going to change everything. I'm so excited to show them off to the world and so excited to see what they can do. But it's, it's remarkable and cannot be more happy with how well they turned out. This is like the founding team of the Next Human Genome Project. Yeah, LatchBio.
4: And we're excited for you guys. On Just with, with respect to the platform, you guys have already made incredible progress developing exciting and complex pipelines like CRISPR, RNA-seq, protein inference models like AlphaFold, proteomics workflows, and even an API to make LatchBio really accessible for everyone. But I'm sure you've also figured out that building an incredible pipeline isn't enough. You also need to sell it and win partnerships so that real-world biologists like those at IGI can realize the value of your platform. How do you approach customer discovery and sales at Latch?
2: I think to boil it down very, very fundamentally, all that matters is what the customer is trying to do. Like all that matters is like what they're trying to accomplish and how we can help them accomplish their goals using the platform that we've built. And we use the term like customer obsessed a lot. We want to be the most customer obsessed team in biotech that just far and above by an order of magnitude will go to the reaches and the ends of the earth to make our customers happy with what we're building and make sure that they feel their needs are fulfilled and that they have like 24 seven support from our team. So when we approach teams, usually the structure is, is we reach out to them we tell them a bit about what we're building. And then from the very first moment on the first call, we just try and understand what's your situation? What's your setup? What assays are you running? What sequence are you using? How many computational team members do you have? Uh, what are your challenges? and your pain points and your frustrations and the things that keep you up at night and the things that waste most of your time that you're pulling your hair out wishing you didn't have to do. And through this holistic understanding of of each individual customer profile, it takes a lot of listening, a lot of empathy, a lot of thinking about how we can nail down their problems and solve them for them. We are selective about who we think we can help and who we can't. And once we get to a stage where it's clear that what we're building would bring value for them. We really evaluate: should we work with this team? Are they a good fit for what we're building? Can we really help them? And if we can, we engage with a pilot. We work with them for a month, and if they're happy, we keep moving. We keep moving forward. Usually, take that on a month-by-month basis from there.
1: I think Kyle's done an amazing job with sales. He single-handedly, like literally single-handedly, as just Kyle, scaled out the sales arm of Latch. Sales is not—you show up you know, with a looking pretty, with a fancy pitch, shoving your product down the customer's throat. It's much more about figuring out, listening to them, meeting them halfway and figuring out if you're a good fit for them or, you know, kicking them down the road if they're not.
3: So guys, are there any new features on the Latch
5: Buy a platform that you're especially excited about? Yeah, definitely. I think there's, I mean, we're trying to launch features every single week, mm-hmm. but there's one that's been, uh, uh, we've been cooking for a while and we're super excited to launch along with our uh with our new funding announcement and that's LatchPods and within LatchPods so i guess to motivate that a lot of the analysis that currently gets done on our platform is very preset and automated analysis it's you know you have an input you know you have an output and let's say to ground it you have a fastq file from your illumina machine and you want to turn it into uh rnac count matrices and so you're going to set a couple parameters and run a workflow and so our platform that's the bread and butter but once that you get that count matrix, a lot of the computational biology work that happens after happens in Jupyter Notebooks and in our Studio. And currently, we've seen so many scientists struggling to set up their environments to even start doing that analysis work, to even start doing that science in their Jupyter, in their Python notebook. And so what we've done with Latch Pods is we are also automating a lot of that infrastructure. And so... With Latch pods, you'll be available. You'll be able to simply click a button, select how much compute you want, select how much memory you want. You'll s- click one button, and we'll spin up a compute instance for you that comes automatically pre-installed with Jupyter Labs comes automatically pre-installed with RStudio and automatically loads in all the data that you already had stored in Latch and a bunch of public data sets. And so with that, you'll be auto- you'll be able to click one button. This Jupyter Labs will open up in, your, in a new br- computer, in a new browser window, but it'll automatically be running on the cloud and you can just start processing all your data there without having to worry about any of the infrastructure that goes along with this compute. So really hope to take many of our pipelines that were previously just the, the initial part, now take them end-to-end for that analysis. So we're super excited for that feature.
1: Yeah, and for the technically minded, this isn't just a thin wrapper over EC2 or this, the instances provided cheaply by cloud providers. We've done this in a really clever way that I think is special and uh, contribution to like just software in general. is If you think of a pod running on Kubernetes or just like a pod or Docker container, we redirected the writable layer of that Docker container to a persistent mount. And this is just like kind of jargon for saying we can now take this pod, which has become like your own VM and resize it arbitrarily or reschedule it arbitrarily. So concretely, this means you're doing this analysis as Alfredo described, and all of a sudden you want four times as many cores, 5x as much file space, Two x as much RAM. Uh, all of a sudden, maybe you want half as much RAM. This is all super possible, possible, and instantaneous with the implementation we've come up with. It's pretty special, and excited to get in the hands of biologists.
4: Sweet deal. If there was one thing that the three of you could have right now that would
5: massively accelerate what you do, what would it be? Just amazing, talented, and ambitious people to to join the team, and really, it's it's just really hard to to find these people that that meet our bar, but when we find them, we found that when we do find that kind of people, we've realized that it's the best way to amplify our what we're making and really be able to amplify our work and the vision for Latch. So it, you, you can only do so much before, uh, before you're bottlenecked by your own time and by your own ability. And so, yeah, just right now, I think my biggest mission is finding the most ambitious, talented uh, poly mathematic people in the world and bring them together, together under a single umbrella organization for them to do the best work of their lives, helping scientists analyze their data faster.
1: Yeah. I would say the same thing. We have not been hiring at least on the engineering side based off of quota. We've been hiring strictly on, we've been throttled on our hiring rate strictly based on how many talented people we come across. Mm. And not many people have made it through our interview process. Exactly the four Latch engineers that are working at Latch have made it through our interview process out of hundreds and hundreds. And so we're looking for people who have a background in computer theory, systems, cloud architecture, mathematics, who want to work on biological problems to come through and work with the team. That is the, the serious one you know, rate limiter on the engineering side right now.
3: And if you three can share... What kind of things are you looking to add next? So what do you have to build to create the next inflection point in the company?
1: We need to perfect the developer facing side of the platform. So making sure that people can both wrap existing tools or develop de novo pipelines from scratch, go from zero to one instantaneously and get them up on the platform as soon as possible is our current priority. I, w- I would say that we're, we're doing many innovative things on the engineering side to make this happen. Server side, Docker builds instead of requiring Docker to be pre- uh, present locally and making sure that all the tooling or at least the, the SDK itself, the way you define and construct workflows, the domain language is more ergonomic. It, but it's going to require tens of thousands of engineering man hours to, to get this done correctly. And that's been the biggest bottleneck to really saturating the platform with more logic that can be useful to the end user we need to get to
2: a point where people can publish these workflows as part of academic publications as well and mm. have people have scientists people to reproduce the workflows within the publication instead of a github link the moment that people start to prefer the platform we're building over something like github for its ease of use and the fact that anyone can run it no code and we're getting adoption within academia and within scientific research. I think that will be a huge milestone. And that's why we need to perfect the developer experience, is to get people to trust using Latch as a means to make their work reproducible.
4: Okay. Alfredo, Kenny, and Kyle, really stretch and find your most optimistic self when you're answering this question. Imagine we're 10 years from today, and everything has gone absolutely perfectly. What does Latch Bio look like, and what have you accomplished?
1: The goal of Latch is to become the universal biocomputing platform for academic research as well as industry biotech. And what that means is covering the entire software stack, all the way from early ideation and developing new biocomputing tools and workflows to really large scale processing of genomes and samples at the 10 to 100,000 million scale. So, really, Being in bed with every major academic institution, making sure that we're providing the proper tooling and being involved with every major and minor biotech company, everyone. We want to become as ubiquitous as AWS, as universal as GitHub, as popular as Microsoft, as basically the universal platform for any sort of analysis using biological data. That is the 10-year mission. We want to be the cloud for every single biotech, and I see a
5: future... Not even in 10 years, but in five, where a biotech doesn't have to know what AWS is or what GCP is, because they're simply going to be building on top of Latch, and doing anything else would be ridiculous. Thank you, Kenny, Kyle, Alfredo.
3: Appreciate it. We love learning about your individual stories and what you, the vision for Latch Bio going forward.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode of Translation. If you're an author of an upcoming paper in bio or know of any interesting papers dropping soon and want to hear from the authors, send us an email to translation at 50.vc. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, good goodbye.